0: Isaiah chapter 6, once you get there, Um, tonight is the second week in our, uh, what we're doing right now is this kind of three-part synopsis of Isaiah. Uh, You know, part of our year-long trek through the major concepts of the Bible, this thing that we're calling the Year of Biblical Literacy, we're using Isaiah as a paradigm for understanding the prophetic books of the Old Testament. The idea is that if you can understand Isaiah— which is a bit tricky, you can understand all of the prophets. So if you've just joined us, you can catch up on where we've been by going back, listening to the podcast, or you can jump right into the Bible reading right now, follow along from here on out. Uh, the Bible reading for this coming week is going to be Hosea 11 through Micah 4, and then you're going to do Psalm 124 through Psalm 130. And then you, man, what a slew of little videos you get from the Bible Project this week. Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, and Micah, all from our friends at the Bible Project down, or, uh, yeah, down, technically, down in Portland. Um, wonderful, tremendously helpful stuff. So if you haven't done anything this year yet, please don't feel intimidated. Just go ahead and join us right now. Now, if you happened to be here last week, you remember that this, uh, the, the book we call Isaiah is kind of framed by a pivotal moment set within the, the larger story of the scriptures, the, the meta-narrative, if you will. So a long time ago, God crafted a good world. He established humanity as his own partners in ruling over the planet. Uh, the idea was that they would reflect and represent God's goodness and God's kingship to the world. They, uh, God's co-la- co-laborers, however, uh, reject God as king, and they send the human project into abrupt decline. So unwilling to scrap uh, both humanity and the originally good world that they inhabit, God devises the strategy to go about rescuing the world. And the rescue plan comes by way of a group of people called Israel. But one problem becomes increasingly clear as the story unfolds. Israel continues to fail at her appointed task to partner with God in saving the world. By the time we get to Isaiah, things have gotten pretty dang bad. Uh, the kingdom is divided. Much of the kingdom has renounced God outright. What's left is in a state of mold, moral and cultural collapse. So God is poised to judge Israel by sending them out of their home, in a sense, and into exile. And Isaiah, the prophet, is God's last-ditch effort to sort of pump the brakes on Israel as she speeds toward a concrete wall. But really, the the ebb and flow of Israel's successes and failures and the, the threat of judgment and the promise of hope, it all starts to feel like polishing the brass on the Titanic. You know, you're thinking, H- how long can we keep this thing up? How long will Israel act as a rescuing agent that continually fails at her task. How can Israel partner with God in redeeming the cosmos if Israel herself is in need of saving? And Isaiah has some of the Scripture's most profound things to say about this problem, but accessing it is sort of complicated. You know, last week we talked about the often confusing tendency of the prophets to, to bundle their terse, manic little collections of uh, oracles, we called them, Um, and then the author just indexes them in rapid succession, often with no introduction whatsoever. So to track with Isaiah, you can parse the entire book. This is one of the most helpful things I've ever learned about the prophets. You can parse the entire book of Isaiah into three distinct categories. The first is, oh, that that looks just awful, doesn't it? (laughs) Hey, I bet Jameson can, he's had to fix that for me before. Watch this. I can keep this up. Oh, there it is. Thanks, Jameson. Um, Covenant failure, covenant judgment, and covenant future. So Israel was locked in a marriage-like union with Yahweh, and she is unfaithful as a bride to Yahweh. For such a profound and tragic breach of covenant, Isaiah details the dire consequences, and that's where you get the judgment piece. But though Israel has broken the covenant, God will remain faithful, judgments never the end of the story, and hope is on the horizon. So not only can the entire entirety of Isaiah be divided neatly amongst these three categories, every single prophetic book can be organized accordingly. And what I'd like to do tonight is to draw two great themes from Isaiah, each of them often uh, I think misunderstood if I may, and tragically so because their implications on the whole of scripture are incredible. The first theme is holiness. And the second theme is atonement. So, with that in mind, let's get to the text. Are you guys ready? You've had quite some time now to turn to Isaiah 6. How hard can it be? There's a table of context and everything. So, Isaiah 6. If you guys are there, let's read beginning with the first verse. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord, high and exalted, seated on a throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were set a theme, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying. And they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of His glory. At the sound of their voices, the doorposts and thresholds shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. Woe to me, Isaiah cried. I am ruined. I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Now, this is uh, sort of fascinating because at this point in the story, Isaiah is a self-proclaimed bad guy, and here he experiences an incredible vision that places him not only in the temple, but in the immediate vicinity of God's presence. And he's surrounded by these, you know, psychedelic-sounding creatures that... Let's be completely honest, they seem to have too many wings, to be quite frank. I mean, who needs six wings? Every time I read that, it's like, man, that's excessive. But uh, I was, uh, I- I've told you guys before about the way that I've indoctrinated uh, my son to love dinosaurs. And the other day, we were thumbing through Princeton's field guide to dinosaurs and paleontological discoveries, you know. And uh, we came across this four-winged specimen called a microraptor, And I was like, that ain't right. Uh, it's got too many wings, you know. The, no one told the micro-raptor about subtlety. What, what's, what, what do you need more than Whatever. Anyway, <laughs> I thought that that was an excellent connection. Apparently, you guys disagree. <laughs> it's, it's, n- <laughs> it's no stretch of the imagination to assume that even without the excessive wings, this might have been an unsettling scene in which to suddenly discover oneself. So he's in God's presence, he's surrounded by these things called seraphim, and the temple is shaking, and there's smoke, and the whole deal. And Isaiah's reaction is, you know, terror. He says, I'm done for. Um, but if you stop and, and actually posit the question, why is that? Uh, the short answer is that it isn't just that Isaiah's afraid of, you know, the, the incredible scene in front of him, it has to do with this concept called holiness, Now, I think it nearly goes without saying that words like holy and holiness belong to, you know, the genre of terms known by nearly everyone and understood by very few folks, myself included. In fact, I suspect that many of us, our comprehension of the idea of holiness has been sort of swept uh, uh, into the bag of synonyms for something like morality, you know, upright morality. We, we think of holiness as sort of an ethical thing. Um, someone is holy when they're moral or they're righteous, and thus, you know, God is holy, so we ought to work to be holy in the same way. But in the Scriptures, God's holiness is more, a bit more complicated. It's more aptly understood to be a way of describing God as the powerful creative force Behind the construction of the universe and only god assumes such a mantle so as such god is altogether unique in the universe or you could say god is altogether holy in all the universe some scholars uh, propose this helpful way of understanding holiness as uh, imagining the earth's sun you know it's altogether unique in our solar system the sun is a, a powerful source of life for planet earth and it is thus holy Now, I don't know how many astronomy buffs there are in the uh, house this evening, but I'm told that uh, the more one inches closer to the sun, the the more vulnerable one becomes to the sun's unique power. Um, And in that case, the very aspects that designate the sun's holiness its its uniqueness its life-giving power those very good things suddenly become very dangerous so in his vision Isaiah understands God's holy presence in the same exact way Isaiah as someone who's impure or uh, unprepared to endure the incredible power of God's presence suspects that he's going to be annihilated by God's presence It's like inching closer to the sun and he shouldn't be there. And it's not because God's presence is this awful destructive force, but because it's so good and he's so unfit to endure it. And Isaiah, you know, he's an Israelite. He knows the story of Moses in which confronted by this shrub that's lit up on fire, Moses has to take off his shoes and cover his face and he's warned not to come any closer and Isaiah, of course, he knows the systems and the structures for uh, Israel's temple. And at the center of the temple dwelled God's holy presence. And to enter into such a place as an impure person, and we'll talk more about that in just a second, seemed to mean certain destruction. In fact, some priests would have a rope tied around their legs so that if they dropped dead while they were in the holy of holies, someone could, you know, bring them on out there. It's like, that, that must be a bummer of a job. Um, (Laughter) Israel had, had established very thorough procedures, or they were, they were established by God, rather, to move from a state of impurity to one of purity. And to do so, the idea was, this all sounds terribly antiquated to us, but the idea was basically to separate oneself from anything connected to death. So carcasses or corpses or diseased skin, even uh, certain bodily fluids, gross, uh, stand to make an, an Israelite impure. And a state of impurity like this, it wasn't necessarily a sinful thing, like someone had done something wrong because they touched a dead animal, um, but it did mean that waltzing into the temple with, you know, the, uh, the impurity cooties or whatever they called them, was, it was a dangerous thing. So now imagine this. In his vision, Isaiah finds himself, he's, he's ritually impure in this sense, and he's right there in the hot spot of, of God's holy presence. So he says, I'm ruined. Well, then, something even stranger happens. Read on in verse six. Then one of the stafim flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. With it, he touched my mouth and said, "See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin atoned for." Now, uh, remember what we were just talking about—the nature of ritual impurity. Typically. Coming into contact with something impure enacts kind of this transaction in which the impurity of, say, something dead or diseased is transferred to the Israelite who touches it. And remember that for later. So imagine what Isaiah must be thinking as this uh, sedaph or it's it's actually a word that means burning one, (laughs) comes flying over, carrying a burning coal, you know, from the altar of sacrifice. You know, I assume he didn't think it was going to tickle or anything. He's, He's horrified. And then this thing touches his lips. The burning coal taken from God's presence transfers its holiness From the coal to Isaiah, which is an entirely alien concept at this point in the story. Rather than being destroyed, Isaiah is transformed. But there's something else going on here as well. Uh, Isaiah is transformed and the Seraf tells him that his guilt has been taken away and that his sin has been atoned for. And, you know, I'm reading this and thinking, well, what in the world does that mean? Now, uh, like we said earlier, the story of the Scriptures opens with a scene of goodness And it's quickly marred by the evil of humanity. And we see that in the story, given genuine freedom to select either God as king or to rebel against God's kingship, humanity will eventually choose to rebel. And this is a huge problem because according to the scriptures, when humanity does choose to rule over itself rather than submitting to God's kingship, stuff gets ruined, basically. If I, after tonight's gathering had concluded, I mingled about the sanctuary and I just started telling folks things about uh, Eric, who was just standing right here singing the way, the lovely way that Eric does. Uh, if I just started to go about saying things about him that were completely untrue, you know, hey guys, Eric's a criminal or, uh, you know, he's always drunk or, you know, th- that, that voice that you were hearing earlier, it's not even his voice. It's being piped in from, you know, up there or whatever it might be. Um, then I would, by my lies, create a direct injustice against Eric. I've upset peace and honesty, and something is owed to rectify the injustice, the start of which might be the work that I would have to do going around saying um, I'd actually lied. Those things that I said weren't true. But of course, by the time that I've done all that, the injustice is already way ahead of me. Now my relationship with Eric is tarnished. There's an inevitable dimension of broken trust and personal injury. Why in the world would you do that? And why did you say things about me that weren't true? Um, And it won't simply vanish when I've confessed my misdeed and I've gone about to reverse it. No matter how gracious and forgiving Eric is, there's a certain amount of um, corruption that's taken place in our emotional connection as friends. And for this further permeation of injustice, something else is owed as well. Cornelius Plantinga says it this way, "'In the Bible, shalom means universal flourishing. It means wholeness and delight, a rich state of affairs in which natural needs are satisfied and natural gifts are fruitfully employed, a state of affairs that inspires joyful wonder as its creator and savior opens doors and welcomes the creatures in whom he delights.'" Shalom, in other words, is the way things ought to be. God hates sin, not just because it violates his law, but more substantively, because it violates shalom, because it breaks the peace, because it interferes with the way things are supposed to be. In the same book, he goes on to describe sin as the vandalism of shalom, And shifting the responsibility uh, for eradicating evil from us to God does us no good either because if God were to eradicate evil in this particular paradigm, he would need to start with me. After all, I'm the evildoer. And then uh, I assume he would then move swiftly to Eric, who, though he seems mild-mannered enough on stage and quite pleasant, I'm sure he's been guilty of a misstep or two himself. I haven't seen them, but they must exist. So uh, imagine these direct deeds of injustice and their pervasive residual effects as an infinitely complex worldwide tangle of evil to which all human beings have contributed and as the story of the scriptures unfolds we're confronted with a God who's committed to not only rid the world of evil but to do so without destroying humanity and you're thinking well how the heck will he do that and early on in the story, we're introduced to this bizarre idea of animal sacrifice. Bizarre to us, anyway. In the ancient world, sacrifice was something of a, a universal practice. You know, if you hop in your DeLorean you and travel to ancient Greece or to Rome or, or to China or to uh, even the Americas, to the ancient, you know, the Incans or the Aztecs, you'll find that the powerful empires of the ancient worlds and even the nomadic poor tribes of the ancient world all practiced animal sacrifice, but... Um, It seems terribly strange to us, but to the Israelites, it was this powerful symbol because Israel understood that life was a gift. And Israel, after all, was called to rule and reign over the world as stewards of God's resources. They were responsible for the land, for the plants and the animals, and to take care of these things. Humanity wasn't even allowed to kill animals for food until after the flood, not in the garden, not after the fall, but until after the flood, and even then with very specific restrictions. So whether human or animal, to the Israelites, life was a sacred thing, and most of us don't think of life this way. We buy food without any thought of where it came from or how it got to our dinner plate. We often think of food as like a product that we've, you know, earned with our paycheck. It's, it's nothing more than a commodity. But in actuality, we're ingesting life from outside of ourselves, whether that's, you know, animal or, or vegetable. And this isn't some hippie rhetoric. I realize how it sounds, but the scriptures are abundantly clear about God's concern for the sanctity and respect and, uh, and, and, and acknowledgement of the sanctity and respect of life from Genesis 1 on throughout the story of the scriptures. And when we fail to recognize that we receive out of the gracious abundance of God's good world, we eventually kind of disconnect from that process. And since many of us already have become disconnected from the process of, say, how food gets to us, a lack of gratitude often follows uh, in fact, an organization called the, um, the, the World Resource Institute suspects that a third of all the food produced worldwide gets lost or wasted. Um, so many of us, you know, myself and absolutely included, look at the Scripture's depiction of animal sacrifice and, uh, and think of it as this uh, primitive barbaric sort of custom But I wonder if if a visitor from the ancient world were to observe our, you know, our factory farms filled with abuse and agony and and the trash cans that are overflowing with the half-eaten hamburgers that the factory farms cranked out. I wonder if that ancient visitor might say, man, you guys are the primitive culture, the barbaric culture. You're the ones who have lost all respect for life and any sense of gratitude for life given. Now, I mention all that, believe me, not not to lay a guilt trip or anyone or to bum everyone out. I want to contextualize the massive difference between our understanding of animal sacrifice, it's going to be significant for our purposes tonight, and what the Israelites believed, that all life is gift. And on top of that, you know, food was far scarcer in the ancient world, so there was both a, a mystic and a practical value there as well. And in animal sacrifice, an Israelite recognized that they were the ones who had contributed to the awful state of injustice and evil in the world. And as such, they should be removed in order to rid the world of evil. But instead, Yahweh allows the life of an animal to act as a substitute, and it symbolically dies in the place of the doer. Uh, This is called atonement, which is just a, a word that means to take away one's debt. And through the symbolic process, Israel is experiencing God's love and God's grace. And since they were called to be unique in the same ways that God is unique, these gestures of God's kindness were meant to compel Israel to be marked by love and grace themselves in the same way that God is, to do justice, to care for the oppressed, for the orphan, the widow, the fatherless, the refugee, those on the margins of society. This is the test of justice. So imagine that I'm, you know, desperately in need of uh, a car for some reason. And let's say that, um, uh, Jasmine, you have a car, Right? Yeah, so she has a car. Let's say Jasmine in a a gesture of incredible kindness says to me, you know what, Josh, here's my car. You can have it. You need it more than me or whatever she's thinking. Now I'm driving Jasmine's car around town um, enjoying her generosity when a friend of mine comes along and asks, you know, for a ride home uh, one evening. Now imagine me in this paradigm saying, oh my God, it's so far out of my way and you're going to have to contribute to gas and man, you really owe me for this one. Folks in, in the know of what had taken place before this, you know, I was so put out, would, would recoil at my audacity that I had been so richly provided for and yet insist on such selfishness would just boggle the mind. And similarly, that God would show such profound mercy uh, to Israel and that she would in turn refuse to show mercy herself, it frustrates the generosity of God. So getting back to Isaiah, if you remember from last week, at this point in the story, Israel has reached such a thorough state of corruption that ritual sacrifice has become a sham in God's eyes because Israel has broken covenant with God. Uh, She's marked by practices of injustice rather than caring for the poor and the oppressed. Israel has become the oppressor herself. She worships other gods. She's broken covenant. So Isaiah speaks God's judgment over Israel for their mistreatment of the oppressed until chapter 40 when that judgment is actually carried out and fully realized and Israel is sent into exile. But that's not the end of the story obviously there's still hope For Israel, Isaiah laments the corruption of Israel's kings and he looks forward to a day when a new king would come to deal with this plague of evil once and for all. And as the story goes on, he starts to actually talk about what this king will be like in a prophetic uh, foretelling sort of way. We're introduced to that character of a coming king, a Messiah king, in an unexpected way. When Isaiah starts to describe this coming king that will combat evil, he describes him as a servant which seems counterintuitive, seems like a weird idea. But that's not the only surprising thing about the coming king. So turn over to Isaiah chapter 53, however many pages or thumb movements that is for you. You guys still with me? Yeah, oh wow, yeah, that was great. That was perhaps the most audible agreement or enthusiasm I've heard. Man, I'm gonna remember that one tonight. They were tracking Isaiah 53. Once you get there, let's read beginning in verse 1 as Isaiah continues to talk about this servant king figure. Who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain Uh, while this this servant king is not only someone who's going to rule by serving, but he's also going to suffer, which seems like a strange thing for a a king to do. Beyond that, he's going to be crushed. How does this make any sense? You know, the the word surely in verse four, surely he took up our pain, is more like uh, on the contrary, he took up our pain. As in, we perceived him this way, but in reality, this is what he was doing. We thought he was cursed, but in reality... He was crushed for us. Read on in verse six. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter and as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. The passage becomes thick with uh, sacrificial language. And it goes on in verse eight. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. Yet who of his generation protested? For he was cut off from the land of the living for the transgressions of my people. He was punished. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death. Though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. So this suffering king uh, dies, which seems like a bad way to go about this whole, you know, restore Israel thing. He's crushed. He goes to the grave. Um, And then in verse 10, check this out. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him, cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life an offering for sin, he will see his offspring and prolong his days. And the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. After he has suffered, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many and he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will give him a portion among the great and he will divide the spoils with the strong because he poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors transgressors, for he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. Now, you know, imagine Isaiah's original audience reading this and going, wait, what? He's, he's He's in the grave, so very dead at this point. In verse 9, but then in verse 10, the Lord will see him and prolong his days. In verse 11, he will see life and be satisfied. What this all meant for Isaiah's original audience must have been, you know, quite mysterious. And they're, they're really not giving further clarity into exactly what's going on here. But later in the story of Scripture, we're introduced to this character called Jesus of Nazareth. Now, rewind to a few minutes ago in our conversation about ritual impurity, Uh, For an Israelite exposing oneself to things associated with death. Uh, Diseases, corpses, (laughs) certain bodily fluids resulted in a state of ritual impurity, making uh, the Israelite in question unfit to endure God's powerfully holy presence. For example, Leviticus 13 details a lengthy chronicle Of all types of skin diseases, poised to make one unclean. This is a tiny excerpt, believe me. Anyone with such a defiling disease must wear torn clothes, let their hair be unkempt, cover the lower part of their face, and cry out, unclean, unclean. As long as they have the disease, they remain unclean. They must live alone. They must live outside the camp. As if, you know, having a skin disease, it wasn't bad enough already. Now, turn in your Bibles uh, to Mark. Chapter, four, or chapter 1. This is a first century biography of this character, Jesus of Nazareth. When Jesus comes on the scene, he's very much familiar with uh, the Torah. He's, he's, you know, someone who practices and teaches the Torah. In fact, we think that he had the Torah memorized. So he's very familiar with this uh, wacky kind of stuff that we're reading um, in Leviticus. But then when you read in Mark chapter 1, verse 40, this happens. A man with leprosy or, you know, one of the most infamous of all the skin diseases came to him and begged him on his knees, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Jesus was indignant. He reached out his hand and touched the man. I am willing, he said, be clean. Immediately the leprosy left him and he was cleansed. Now, According to Leviticus, what should happen to Jesus when he touches the dude with the skin disease? What's that? What's all the mum? Yeah, he should be impure. He should become ritually impure. But what happens instead? Yeah, the, Jesus actually enacts a transfer to this gentleman, and the gentleman with leprosy is healed. Um, Leviticus also details the way in which a woman's monthly cycle, cycle makes her ritually impure. Here's another great excerpt for you guys. When a woman has her regular flow of blood, the impurity of her monthly period will last seven days, and anyone who touches her will be unclean till evening. When a woman has a discharge of blood for many days at a time other than her monthly period, or has a discharge that continues beyond her period, she will be unclean as long as she has the discharge, just as in the days of her period. And don't feel singled out, ladies. There's also very icky laws that apply to the unique male issues, but that's a, another teaching that Cameron will give at some point in the, in the not-so-distant future. Um, turn in your Bibles just a tad to Mark chapter 5, a page or two. Once you're there, let's read Mark chapter 5, beginning with verse 25. And you see the people crowding against you, his disciples answered, and yet you can ask who touched me? But Jesus kept looking around to see who had done it. Then the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell at his feet, trembling with fear. And she told him the whole truth. He said to her, daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace and be freed from your suffering. Now again, is the bleeding woman uh, keeping Torah or keeping the law or is she breaking Torah or breaking the law? Breaking, right, yeah. And according to Leviticus, what should happen again to Jesus when he touches a woman who's bleeding? He should be impure, and instead, the woman is healed. One more example from Numbers 19. This one's pretty cut and dry. Whoever touches a human corpse will be unclean for seven days. Try to avoid that one if you can. Now look back down in Mark 5, and let's see what happens immediately after Jesus heals the bleeding woman, beginning in verse 35. While Jesus was still speaking, right after this thing has gone on with him and the woman, some people came from the house of Jairus, the synagogue leader. Your daughter is dead, they said. Why bother the teacher anymore? Jesus was on his way to heal a sick little girl. Overhearing what they said, Jesus told him, don't be afraid, just believe. And he did not let anyone follow him except Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. When they came to the home of the synagogue leader, Jesus saw a commotion with people crying and wailing loudly. He went in and said to them, why all this commotion and wailing? The child is not dead, but asleep. But they laughed at him. After he put them all out, he took the child's father and the two were with him and went in there where the child was. He took her by the hand and said to her, Talitha Kaum, which means little girl, I say to you, get up. Or it could be translated sweetheart or sweetie, I say to you, get up. Immediately the girl stood up and began to walk around. She was 12 years old. At this, they were completely astonished. Now, again, according to Numbers, when Jesus touches Uh, a dead girl, he should become impure. Instead, what happens is the girl is uh, healed. She comes back to life. Rather than the impurity of the disease, the afflicted, and even the dead transferring to Jesus, making him impure, Jesus' purity transfers to them enacting a healing, restorative work even in their bodies themselves. Remember, healing in the scriptural sense is, is like salvation. It's more than just one-dimensional. It has to do with the body, with the soul, with the mind, the emotion. It's uh, a through and through. So like the, the burning coal from Isaiah's vision, Jesus, who is the human embodiment of God's holy presence, is doing this incredible cleansing work in the people that he even touches and if you remember Isaiah's vision, there's also that phrase: "Your guilt is taken away, and your sin is atoned for." And that's what Isaiah 53 is all about. What we just read: "Surely he took up our pain, bore our suffering. We considered him punished by God, stricken by him, and he was pierced for our transgressions; he was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed." In Jesus, the powerful symbol of animal sacrifices, transitions from the abstract to the concrete. Jesus becomes the definitive portrait to which all the symbolic practices of sacrifice were pointing. No longer a symbol, the sacrifice of Jesus reveals to us God's maintained willingness to display both justice and mercy but in a way so profoundly beautiful that it absolutely boggles the mind. The sacrifice of Jesus reveals the unbelievable heart of God, a God who would rather allow himself to be destroyed by evil than to destroy evildoers. In theology, the, the concept of atonement is a, is a complicated thing. It's a multifaceted. You know, In the atonement, Jesus, he defeats the devil and he destroys the works of Of his evil. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the work of the devil. In the atonement, death itself becomes undone, paving the way for the resurrection of the dead. In the atonement, Jesus partners with God the Father to cover over our debt. The idea is kind of like we flicked the first domino, we stewarded the entropy, we contributed to the crescendo of evil in ways big or small, and God covers over the debt. And many of us have been, I realize, we've been so numbed by Christian platitudes about, you know, Jesus dying on the cross for our sins that the magnitude of this idea is often completely lost on me. You know, others of us have created in our minds this image of an angry and mean-spirited, old prude of a God sitting high and detached from behind a judge's bench as he sentences us to death for our crimes, you know, and it's Jesus who leaps in front of us and, and, you know, the Father's condemning finger and goes, no, Dad, take me instead. Um, uh, But it's such a... It's such a bizarre and misplaced idea. Make no mistake, the sacrifice of Jesus is both the Father and the Son partnering to satisfy both God's justice and to carry out his mercy. Jesus does not rescue us from God. God is the rescuer. God does not pour his wrath out on Jesus, as is often said. God is not a red-faced monster destroying his gentle and kind son who dies in our place. In the atonement, both the Father and the Son agonize and sacrifice. Both the Father and the Son are angry with evil, and both the Father and the Son rescue us from inevitable destruction. And we, like Israel, need rescuing. You know, I recently navigated—I uh, think—to the best of my abilities. I could be wrong. The painful splintering of a very old uh, friendship, and some direct things were done that that brought about wounding and mistrust. But then these simple things began to ripple, and the environment of the relationship was rapidly decimated, like like a you know a a, a pin drop of black dye in a clear glass of water. And there's this lingering sense that. Things have been done both directly and indirectly and someone has to do something about it. There are debts, there are wrongs that are crying out for restitution and they echo back with heartache and with remorse. And I was talking to my wife, Abby, about it the other day and the realization began to sink in that even though we're paying, we're praying for the redemption of this relationship, there now lingers this disruption in the air, reconciling won't be like flicking on a switch if it happens in this age at all, and it's really not uh, up to me entirely. The disruption of shalom comes at a horrible cost that soaks into the fabric of life like an awful dark stain. The shattering of relationships, the corruption of trust, the long-term wounding of emotional health, and and you know what about broken marriages? What about uh, addiction and abuse? What about absenteeism and infidelity? What about deception and, and betrayal and violence and hatred, darkness and despair? We create a whirlpool of ugliness that goes billowing like this awful black tsunami over the terrain of our lives, and our world sweeps us up in its relentless current, and we need rescuing. And one interesting, often misunderstood dimension of the animal sacrifice system. Was that an animal sacrifice wasn't a means of earning God's favor? Like you pay for this, and then you 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 know you've paid for God's favor. It's a way to enter God's pre-existent favor. The idea was that you're clearing away any and all obstacles that inhibit God's presence and proximity that longs for you at all times. Sacrifice wasn't the method by which Israel cleaned themselves up in order to meet with God, but rather God's method of cleansing Israel that they might be welcomed before him. In Isaiah's vision, the burning coal doesn't cleanse Isaiah so that God can tolerate Isaiah's presence. It's the reverse. God is cleansing Isaiah so that Isaiah can tolerate God's presence. And often I've heard people go on about this nonsense, you know, a holy God cannot tolerate sin in his presence. But if you think back to the to our metaphor about the sun as something holy like God's presence, it's an an analogy. It breaks down after a while. The one big difference is that unlike the sun, we were intended to live close to God, to live with him. And though God is unique in all the world, the powerful creative force behind the construction of the universe, though God is pure without any trace of evil or injustice, this very same God willingly steeps his hands in that swirling, rotten chaos that we've made out of the world. Not to destroy it, but to rescue it. And rather than being tainted by all that awful, all that awful is redeemed by God. And this is the very thing that Isaiah is calling Israel to remember. God has called us to do justice the way he does justice, to act as agents of love and mercy, just as God himself is loving and merciful. This is how we represent God's character to the world, by acting justly and mercifully, God calls us to this really high standard of justice and mercy, and he says, come and do the same. You know, to to quote Catholic radical Dorothy Day, I really only love God as much as the person I love the least. And I I don't know where this finds you guys this evening. For some of you, you know, maybe the resonance here is in the reality of God's outrageously merciful and kind character. And maybe what you need tonight is God's spirit reminding you of king jesus as he runs to those on the margins of society the truly messed up to touch them that's what god is like with a touch jesus makes the impure pure and he readies us to enjoy god's presence not because god can't stand to be around us but because god wants us back for others of you maybe you know we're being reminded that uh, we are called to do justice to live as agents of god's mercy And love, As the prophet rails against the people who have grown numb to the cries of the orphan and the widow and the refugee, the poor, the oppressed, the so-called worthless person on the margins of society, maybe tonight God's Spirit is compelling a lot of us, I think, to think beyond the the very low ceiling of our often selfish disposition. That rather than look to the evil and injustice and the suffering in the world and ask, you know, the age-old question, why doesn't God do something? About all this. Instead, we might recognize God has done something about this. He has cleansed us, He has shown us mercy, and He has called us to do the same thing.